Well, it's good to see you guys. It's good to be here to begin this new study in the book of Titus. Always a joy to open up a, a new book of the Bible, to study it, and uh, Lord willing to bring the implications to bear on the hearts and minds of us. If you would please open your Bibles to the book of Titus. We embark upon this new study. Hopefully we'll get to enjoy it for the remainder of this semester. Yes, you heard me right. I have high hopes to finish this by the end of the semester. We'll see, Lord willing, how that unfolds. But uh, the way it's planned out right now, I think we're going to move right through this book on Sundays, and so I'm excited about that. If you've been here for any length of time at all, you know that when I begin a new book, that the opening message is always entitled, as you see on your sheets there, a bird's eye view of whatever book that is. I do that intentionally. It is very much like the series we are going through on Wednesday nights. I think it's so abundantly helpful when we begin to study a new book of the Bible that we set it in its context, that we set the theme before our hearts and our minds. And so as we begin to unpack it verse by verse, beginning next week, that, that we will understand it as the author intended us to understand it. And so this message is entitled, A Bird's Eye View of Titus. As I thought about the overall theme of this letter, which we will get to in just a moment, my mind went to a missions organization that I am familiar with. Several years ago, while I was in California, I had the privilege of serving as the pastor of student ministries at a church called the Bridge Bible Fellowship. It was a local church there in the San Fernando Valley there in, well, it was near Van Nuys and it was in a a place called Reseda. And during that stint there serving those students, I developed a friendship and relationship with a man named Paul Brown. And you guys, if you've been here over the last couple years, you've heard Paul. He came and spoke at our missions conference a handful of years ago. He's spoken at a couple different men's breakfasts. And um, Paul is a, is a close friend of mine, a mentor um, who God has used in a very special way. As I began serving as a youth pastor there at this church, I became familiar with the reality that, that Paul had begun a missions organization several years prior to my being there. In fact, he had gotten connected to a man named Ryder Kumar um, through various circumstances. Ryder was an Indian national, and those guys developed a relationship, and Ryder said, Paul, we need to figure out a way to train pastors in India. <laughs> that is a large, large task. India is humongous. I think it's about to become the, lar the largest um, country in the world, just about to beat out China. And so they began praying about it and began thinking through what to do. And in 2004, they began shepherding the nations. 
Shepherding the Nations is an agency that trains local men in India and Nepal, and now actually in several countries in Latin America, to be pastors in, and church leaders. They use a particular curriculum that takes these men through a study to where they would get the equivalent, probably not quite of a bachelor's degree at this point, but, but somewhere between maybe an associate's and a bachelor's degree in Bible education. And I think there's hopes down the road to continue to grow this and so that their education continues to be developed more and more. But this particular training program fits well with what they want to do. For each region that they're in, they target a qualified man who will then be able to train other men in that region. And this is all for the purpose of evangelism and the multiplication of churches. Over the past 19 years, several thousand men have been trained and many churches have been established throughout the nation of India. In 2022 alone, over a thousand people were being trained in India and Nepal with 450 set to graduate at the end of the year to go and to begin training others. As I thought about this, I thought about the reality that this is God using faithful, qualified men to train other faithful, qualified men and setting them in place to then evangelize the world and to continue establishing faithful elders and pastors so that the multiplication process continues over and over and over again. It's an amazing process. It's a process that we find in the New Testament. As we find qualified men who God ordains, who he raises up, who train other men, who then train other men, and all of a sudden you have all of these churches established across Asia, across Europe, there in the New Testament. This process involves faithful leadership doing their part. It involves the church functioning as it ought to, as the church. And then it involves the church functioning in the world as it is called to function in the world. This is what we see unfold in the book of Titus. Paul left Titus in Crete to appoint elders in the various churches so that the church there would function biblically and be a faithful witness to the wicked world that surrounded them. The simple theme of Titus, which you're looking at your sheets and you see the word theme. I'm not there yet. The simple theme of Titus which we will expound on more in a moment, is this. It is adorning the doctrine of God. Adorning the doctrine of God. And that comes out of Titus chapter 2, verse 10. But before we look at that, before we understand what it means and how that theme works itself out throughout the book, I want us to consider the setting of this letter for a moment. Titus is one of Paul's two primary sons in the faith. I think Paul had a lot of sons in the faith. Paul had the privilege of, of leading a lot of people to Christ. He was a very faithful missionary, a very faithful pastor. But in God's providence, Timothy and Titus are those whom God chose to emphasize by the hands of 
Paul as he wrote these letters. Titus is not mentioned by name in the book of Acts, if you were to read that through. But the reality is he probably came to faith under Paul's first missionary journey as Paul was ministering there at the beginning of, uh, of his time that God had called him to do so. We know from Galatians chapter 2, verse 3, that Titus was a Gentile and that he was ministering with Paul at various times during Paul's journeys. At times he was with him, doing the same work as the Apostle Paul. At times, Titus was in different locations doing the work. We know that he definitely ministered for a decent period of time at Corinth, as Paul refers to Titus nine times in his second letter to the Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians also tells us that it was Titus who delivered that letter to the church at Corinth. Titus was a trusted companion of Paul. In fact, he refers to Titus as his brother in 2 Corinthians 2.13 and as his partner and fellow worker in 2 Corinthians 8.23. He had also been at the Jerusalem council with Paul and Barnabas years earlier. Throughout his ministry alongside Paul, Titus certainly became very familiar with the Judaizers. The Judaizers were those who wanted to add the Mosaic law to the gospel for salvation. Simply, they wanted to add, it, they wanted to add works to the gospel of grace. Titus, as a result of spending all of this time with the Apostle Paul, with Barnabas, with other leaders of the early church, he had a very firm theological foundation. He was grounded in the faith. He was grounded in the gospel. He was grounded in his understanding of the word of God that they had at that time. Later in Paul's ministry, he and Titus ended up in Crete, preaching the gospel and establishing churches. Titus 1.5 tells us that Paul left Titus in Crete to take care of a number of things. Crete is one of the largest islands in the Mediterranean Sea. It's located southeast of the country of Greece. It's about 160 miles long, and its width spans from 7 to 35 miles, depending upon where you are on the island. One commentator states that at one time, Crete served as the center of the Minoan civilization from 2700 to 1420 BC, which many regard as the earliest recorded civilization in the continent of Europe. Crete had been around a long time, and Crete had deep roots as a nation. And because of its location, because of where this island was located, it was influenced by both Greek and Roman civilizations. Crete was a very worldly country, and it did not have a good reputation. In fact, Paul quotes one of the philosophers of the day in chapter 1, verse 12. He says, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, somebody from Crete itself, said this, that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul goes on to say this testimony is true. Because of the Greek influence, the 
Greek deities were worshipped among pagan people. In fact, these deities were often referred to as their saviors. We think of God, we think of the term savior, and so the same is true for those who worship false gods, for those who worship idols. They would refer to these deities, this plethora of gods that they worshipped, as Savior. And you will notice in the semester as we work through this letter that Paul frequently uses the term Savior in reference to Father God and the Lord Jesus Christ. One commentator notes that Paul does this for the purpose of designating them as the true provider and exclusive mediator of salvation. See, this would counter the teaching of the day on that island. As they refer to all of these other gods as their savior, Paul, over and over in this letter, when he refers to God, and you'll see even God and Lord Jesus Christ, put together in several places, and there's one particular text that we'll see that that confirms, through the Greek language, that confirms the deity of Christ, even in this text, which we know to be true from the whole of Scriptures. But Paul regularly, when talking about God the Father, when talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, refers to them as Savior. Savior. He wanted to counter the teaching of the day. He wanted Titus as the one who he left there to put things in order to counter that teaching of the day, that philosophy of the day. Now we know that Paul had brief interaction in Crete from Acts 27 on his voyage to Rome and where he ended up, when he ended up going to Crete, we're not sure. But the, but the fact the way that verse 5 reads there in chapter 1, that he left him in Crete, it indicates that Paul had also spent some time there. So whether it was after his interaction or that interaction, particularly there in Acts 27 during his voyage to Rome, we're not sure. But we also know this, that from Acts chapter 2, and this is important, that there were Cretans in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and heard the gospel in their language. We just spent two messages the last week in Acts chapter 2, uh, we spent time in verses 37 through 42, but I did go back and reference how on that day the Spirit came down and there were many tongues, there were many languages that went forth. And, and it was during that time that those, those languages, that through those apostles, through those speaking those languages, that many people heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Cretans were there. Most likely, this is how then the gospel reached the island of Crete initially was on that day as those guys heard the gospel, as God saved, we know, at least 3,000 people, according to Acts chapter 2. Perhaps even some of those were Cretans, and they went back to their hometown, their home nation eventually, and the gospel was established on that island. That's most likely how the gospel reached Crete. And so not only was Crete pagan through and through, but the gospel that had been brought there initially, which was certainly pure in most of its forms, had also then begun to be, a, to be maligned by Judaizers. One commentator states that the profile of the false teachers in the letter to Titus suggests that these opponents are Christian Jews who promulgate 
Torah observance based on an unduly narrow interpretation of the law that Paul rejects as improper for Gentile Christians. In other words, they were seeking to mix the Old Testament law with the gospel and demanded that any Gentiles who wanted to convert and needed to keep the Old Testament rituals and purification ceremonies in order to be saved. This was the same song, second verse for Titus. As he had watched this unfold in the Jerusalem council. Isn't that what they were there discussing in Acts chapter 15? That many of these Jewish believers were saying, hey, these Gentiles who are coming to faith in Christ, yes, they need to come to faith. They need to believe in who Christ is. They need to trust him. They need to repent. But they also need to do these other things. They need to be circumcised, and they need to do this, and they need to do that. And Titus had been there for that discussion when they got done, and the apostles corrected those, those Jewish believers and said, no, the gospel comes to us as God's grace that we accept by faith. And they established that. Well, now, in God's providence... This is where Titus was. He was in a pagan city with some new believers, with some established churches who were vulnerable theologically. And there was a slew of Judaizers in this region who were perverting the gospel. This is where Titus was sent. This is where Titus was. Paul said, I am leaving you here put things in order in the churches. And his mission was to establish leadership in the churches so that the gospel could go forth to the island. That was his mission. So if we're thinking about a theme, if we're thinking about unpacking that theme of adorning the doctrine of God, this is what I would say. Paul's letter to Titus is a manual to the church and its leaders which explains how to evangelize the culture by adorning the doctrine of God. Paul's letter to Titus is a manual to the church and its leaders which explains how to evangelize the culture by adorning the doctrine of God. And this theme is emphasized in three ways throughout this letter that we will unpack as we study it. And it's, it's broken down very simply. To remember Titus is very simple. It's got three chapters. The theme breaks down in three ways. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. It's very nice. So these three ways you can write down there are adorning the doctrine of God through qualified church leaders. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 is adorning the doctrine of God in the church. And chapter 3 is adorning the doctrine of God in the world. So adorning the doctrine of God through qualified church leaders, adorning the doctrine of God in the church, and adorning the doctrine of God in the world. And as the doctrine of God is rightly adorned in these areas evangelism will take place 
and the culture around. This was pertinent for Titus to understand in his day, and it is pertinent for you and I to understand in our day. This book, the book of Titus, will challenge us in our evangelistic efforts. It's going to confront us, it's going to challenge us, and it's going to encourage us. So for our remaining moments this morning, I want us to briefly flesh out this theme. So turn to Titus chapter 2 for just a moment. Turn to Titus chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 9 through 14. Paul says, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to Deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." In chapter 2 of the book of Titus, Paul gives Titus instructions for how the church of God is to conduct themselves. He speaks to older men, he speaks to older women, he speaks to younger men, and he speaks to younger women, and then he speaks to slaves, workers in that day. And he gives them particular instructions, and we're not going to walk through those this morning, and when we get there, we'll take our time and work through that, but... He gives them these instructions and says that the church is to operate this way so that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. In chapter 2, there's actually three so that statements. There in verse 4, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. And then there in verse 5, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And then there in verse 10, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. To adorn something is to make it, a tr- uh, to make it attractive. It is to make it beautiful and desired. This same word is used in 1 Timothy 2 where Paul instructs women in the church to prioritize adorning themselves with good works rather than with jewelry or braided hair. Listen, I think my wife is the most beautiful woman in the world. But the attraction that drew me to her was what Paul instructs Timothy about, her modesty, her godliness, and her good works. That was Paul's point to Timothy, that that women are to be attractive in the sense that they are modest, that they are godly, that they do the works that God has called them to do. 
And that is the same word that is used here in Titus chapter 2. And this is what Titus is to communicate to the churches in Crete. That your obedience to Christ, seen in submission to your earthly authorities and your orderliness in the church, make the doctrine concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ attractive to those around you. Our lives are for the purpose of making the doctrine concerning our Lord attractive. The teaching concerning our Lord Jesus Christ attractive to those whom we come in contact with, to those whom we influence. You see, structure, orderliness, and submission are attractive qualities. And we see these qualities highlighted in the leadership in chapter 1. We see it highlighted in the church body in chapter 2. And we see it highlighted in the church body's interaction with the world in chapter 3. God's church is the bride of Christ, and therefore the bride needs to reflect Christ. This is why God ordained leadership is essential and why church body harmony and mutual submission is critical. When we proclaim the message of the gospel to the world, our witness must be credible as individual believers and as a corporate church body. We know what a witness that lacks credibility looks like. Probably, if you're honest with yourself, you've had a time or two in your life where your witness wasn't quite credible. And we've seen examples on larger stages of people who prolificate concerning the gospel of Christ, but then their lives are found out to be nothing more than pure shams. They're schemers. And so this is critical. The proclamation of the gospel from us to those who are in the world, from, from us to those whom we have the privilege of influencing, must be undergirded by a life that is in submission to Jesus Christ critical. This letter also indicates then that the local church is to be the driving factor behind evangelism to the world. And this ties into what we discovered in our last two messages in the book of Acts, that the local church is central to the lives of those who are truly converted. Evangelism is to be intricately linked with local church ministry. You'll see that in the book of Titus. This is critical. This is something that your ecclesiology needs. We need to wrap our minds around the reality of how God intended evangelism to be done. Because there's a lot of willy-nilly people out there doing their thing, 
And listen, you have the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody, share the gospel with somebody. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying there are intentional efforts of evangelism being done that fail to take into consideration what the Bible has said needs to happen with people who are evangelized. We're not to just evangelize people and leave them to the world. Evangelism is much more than that. And it requires the church. And we're going to see that in the book of Titus. I want you to notice how this letter is structured because this, this helps us understand this. First, in chapter 1, Titus is instructed to train and appoint elders in the churches established across the island. But you see that there in verse 5. Paul says, For this reason I left you in Crete. Why? That you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I have directed you. So Titus was instructed to train and appoint elders. Why train? Because as we'll begin to look at next time, <clears throat> he goes through and explains to Titus, here are the qualifications that you need to look for in the elders that you appoint. And so Titus is instructed to train and appoint elders in the churches established across the island so that the elders may do the task that is laid out in the second half of chapter 1. And we're going to be introduced to, to these Judaizers there the second half of chapter 1. And Paul says that they are to instruct them in the truth. They are to denounce their heretical views. They are to instruct them in the truth. And they are to care for these people who are in the churches. And so that's how it begins. Dealing with the leadership of the local church. That's what Titus is, is called to do. is to deal with this leadership. This is first for a reason. Healthy churches require qualified leaders. And it is healthy churches that then produce genuine converts through their God-exalting ministry and worship. New converts are then trained and nourished in the faith by that healthy church and its leadership. And it is there then that genuine disciples are made. This should bring to mind the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Christ's last words before he ascended into heaven to his apostles, to his disciples. They were told to go out into all the world and to make disciples. He didn't just stop there. I think they would have understood what he meant. But he then goes on to describe the concept of a disciple. What is he talking about? And he describes them as those a true disciple is those who adhere to the gospel message. They are then baptized, and then they are then taught the whole counsel of God. Right? That's what they were instructed to do. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to do all that I have commanded you. How does this take place outside of the confines of an established local church. Sure, there are these organizations, if that's what you want to call them, who are baptizing people randomly in various places, various rivers that they come in contact with. Perhaps you were part of that at a camp. <laughs> I was, I was uh, when I was a youth pastor in Colorado, 
Um, I would go up to camp every summer, believe it or not, and like real camp, <laughs> not our camps, not, not, not Beaver's Bend, <laughs> cabins with a lot of little people. And so eventually I got out of that, and then I was staying in my own little pop-up camper. Yes, <laughs> I owned a camper. These are days that are far behind us. But <laughs> I was there, and I was there all summer. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed being up there and being a part of these people's lives. But, man, we would, we would wrangle these counselors in from all over the place. And you've had this experience, right? You've gone and you've counseled at camps, and you start hanging out with those other counselors. You're like, uh-oh, we are on different theological pages here. Well, that's, that's just how this world was for me. We are on different theological pages. So I just took it as an opportunity. I would always spend the summer trying to, in, you know, invest in the lives of these, these people who I, I think were believers who just had not been trained properly at all. But, but I, you know, I would get word that they were going to go down to this river and they were going to start baptizing people. I'm like, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? Like, you just don't just go baptizing people. What's the purpose of baptism? And give me, you know, an opportunity to talk about those kinds of things. But, so there are those kinds of organizations, those kinds of things, where, where this stuff just kind of starts happening out randomly without being attached to the program that God has designed. And so that does beg the question, how does this happen outside of the confines of an established local church? Well, it doesn't. The local church is critical and essential to this process. New converts, those who are evangelized and who God opens up their eyes to the truth of the gospel and they come to the gospel by faith and repentance. Those new converts must then get plugged into a local church immediately because it is at that point that they will begin to sit under sound preaching and teaching and they can begin to grow in the knowledge and in their knowledge of Christ and their subsequent love for Christ because we know that knowledge drives us to love. And then they can become faithful, fruit-bearing Christians. Listen, many of you have experienced this. Perhaps you came from a church that was weak in their theology. And you, you were in Christ. You understood the gospel, but, but you felt like you were stagnant. You were infantile in, in your understanding of, of Christ, understanding of the Bible. And then God in his kindness led you to a church where sound doctrine and a devoted love for Christ were, were treasured. And you began to grow leaps and bounds. I've talked to a number of you about that. It's an amazing thing. Because God saves you and then in his kindness he brings you to a place where, where you can be trained and, and you can understand the truth. Uh, this happened to me at various levels over the years. I was a part of good churches, and I was a part of not-so-good churches. And I can look back at the churches where, where God-ordained elders were established in those churches, and they were carrying out the tasks given to us in the Scriptures. And I was sitting under faithful preaching and teaching. And I can look back to certain points in my Christian life where God began to formulate and establish these these very important doctrines in the Bible sitting under that kind of teaching, like the doctrines of grace. Think about the sovereignty of God and salvation. You know, new believers come to faith in Christ and they're thinking through all of that and that could be a big thing where like, I don't understand that. I mean, I chose to come to Christ and that's true, you did. You, you, you did repent and believe in the gospel, but the reality is God saved you. 
God opened your eyes to the truth. God gave you the faith to believe. And, and I was working through this kind of stuff in my mind, and I remember sitting under this preaching and teaching for two years and walking out of there saying, oh, I now have a grasp and understanding of what God did for me in salvation. We understand how this works. This is why the church is so critical to new converts. You've met Christians. Maybe you were one of these Christians. Maybe you are one of these Christians. Uh, you got saved, and, and you just have all these wild views concerning the Bible. And if you're here and you spout out wild views, hopefully we will gently correct you and help you and guide you. But, but you've met some folks, and, and you're talking to them and thinking, like, you, you know the gospel, but everything else you're saying is wild. Where'd you get that information? because they haven't been plugged into a church. They haven't been sitting under the faithful teaching and preaching of the word of God. They haven't been discipled. They haven't been trained. It's critical. It's critical. A church with qualified leadership is critical to the evangelism process. That's why, Tim, that's why Paul starts there with Titus. Notice then the second part of this letter and how it is structured. In chapter two, the church members are addressed And they're told to fulfill their function within the local body. That's what chapter 2 is about. And it is here where specific instruction and training takes place. It's in the local church. It's where that, that instruction, that training happens, and then it equips the members of the church to be faithful evangelists in the world. Think about Ephesians chapter 4. Why did God appoint all of these different gifted people in the church, particularly in that text He's talking about pastors and elders and and the way that they go in and equip the body for the work of the ministry. You know, you're like me in the sense that you've had times in your life where you have maybe a gospel conversation, you walk away from that thinking, that didn't go very well, right? And maybe it was because I just didn't feel like I knew where to go with this. Like they asked me this question, I wasn't sure what to do with this. Or, or they started talking about this doctrine and I wasn't sure how to get back on track and actually talk about the gospel. And you walk away and you're kind of frustrated. I mean, you're thankful for the opportunity, but you know, it wasn't very satisfying. See, you come to the church as a person who God saves. You get placed in the local body. You begin to be taught the word of God You begin to be discipled by older, godlier people in the church. And all of a sudden, you go back out and start having those conversations. And guess what? You're equipped. You're ready to go. You're ready to do what God has called you to do. That's why God put this in place the way that he did. Notice, notice where the emphasis of instruction is placed. Now, we didn't read through chapter 2, but if you take... You know, 30 seconds and read through chapter 2. You can do that this afternoon. It's only, it's only just a few verses. But you will see that the emphasis in this chapter, it's not on programs, it's not on products, and it's not on methods. So often when our mind goes to evangelism, we're thinking the right program to put somebody into, the right products we need to give them, or the right methods by which we need to do that. Now those things are helpful. And they're tools. That is not the emphasis of chapter 2. The emphasis, rather, of the instruction targets the character of the individual members. Paul tells Titus, listen, you need to instruct your people 
to be godly people, to be focused on holiness, to be focused on keeping their heart in order, to be focused on being sensible, understanding the things of the Lord. Listen, you want to be an effective evangelist, and I hope you do as a Christian. You want to be an effective evangelist? You need to focus your life on being a faithful and devoted Christian who loves Christ and loves the things of Christ. That's what Paul tells Titus. You need to focus on learning and understanding sound doctrine. That's why you're here. You soak it in. Every venue on this church campus, you are going to get sound doctrine. Every opportunity you get to be under it, you are there. You're soaking it in. You're thinking through it. You learn what it means to have sober, reverent behavior. You commit yourself to moral purity. You commit yourself to good works. You commit yourself to faithful speech. You commit yourself to the obedience to the truth. And when you do this, when that is your life, Christian, when you do that, those who you influence will have the opportunity to see Jesus Christ as beautiful and glorious. And your faithful proclamation of the gospel will carry a full credibility. Third part of this letter begins with the reality of the transforming power of the gospel. And then it continues with instructions for the church and their interaction with the world. See, Titus here is to remind in chapter 3, remind the believers who they once were and who God has now changed them to be. This section is one of my favorite sections in the scriptures. It's loaded with the doctrine of regeneration. That God is the one who grants life through his spirit. That God is the one who takes out the heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. And this section is loaded with that theology. And the point, the point, and we'll get there and we'll spend time with that. But the point that Paul is making is that this miracle of the new birth produces good works in the lives of believers which are then manifested to the world. And if you look at the end of the text, profitable for mankind. Listen, this is Ephesians 2.10. You were saved by grace through faith, verses 8 and 9. Why? To be God's workmanship and to carry out good works prepared before you, prepared, prepared for you by Christ. That's what this is. Listen, regeneration and only regeneration empowers believers to be faithful evangelists. Titus's responsibility is to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior by appointing qualified men to lead and train the members of the Cretan churches and then to remind them that the gospel has saved us unto good works which we are to perform in the world which in turn punctuates the beauty of the gospel so that the world may see Christ and respond to his offer in the gospel. That's the book of Titus. Hope you're excited. I was thinking through this and 
studying through this, I, my heart was overwhelmed with joy because God hasn't left us just kind of wandering in this world, Christian. We have a specific goal. We are his faithful ambassadors. We are to be about living for Christ and getting the message of Christ to those around us. Studying Titus is going to increase our knowledge of God. It's going to increase our love for him. And hopefully it's going to invigorate a greater desire in us to be devoted to the church and focused on expanding his kingdom. May we be committed to praying to this end. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to study this book this semester. May you help us to understand the importance of the things that Paul wrote to Titus over 2,000 years ago. As we (coughs) embark on this study, Father, it is our desire to be faithful in what you've called us to be. You've called us to love Christ and you've called us to be devoted to Christ. So help us to be faithful to that end. Help us to be committed to holiness. And Father, help us to be open to being used by you as those who are to operate in a particular way throughout the world in which we live. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your plan. We thank you for the way that you have created things to work. And we thank you that as we are faithful to do that which you have called us to do in the way in which you've called us to do it by the means which you have provided, that you will continue to grow your church. You will continue to expand your kingdom. And Father, we will get to, in your kindness, be a part of it. So we love you. Commit these students to you. Commit our study to you. Commit our time now as we close here and then go participate in our corporate worship with so many other brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for the church. Thank you for your love. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the gospel. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.